We need to be busy. So if you turn in your Bibles this morning, this amazing Palm Sunday morning, a study that I've entitled The Messiah's Parade. We'll pick up here in John 12, verse 12, and we'll continue down to verse 19. And it says there in verse 12, the next day, uh, the next day, remember Jesus has been traveling. He had come up the Jericho Road, and he traveled up the Jericho Road, would have come around through, there's a valley that descends down from the confluence of the Kidron and the Hinnom Valley, and it travels down and around the Mount of Olives, and then he would have been coming up along that road. He would have come first to Bethpage and then to Bethany. And he went to Bethany, you remember the story there? It's actually recorded for us in chapter 11 that Jesus came and uh, his friends lived there, Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, and Lazarus had died. And Jesus actually tarried in Bethpage a couple of days. And, you know, the sisters are going like, well, you know, what are you doing, Jesus? How come you didn't come earlier? And Jesus came and, and then he raised Lazarus from the dead. And it was at that time that he said to them, I am the resurrection and the life. And so it's after this that we now pick up the story. And it's the next day this great multitude had come to the feast, it says there in verse 12. Now, to understand this, you have to put it in the perspective of the time. You see, when we think about a parade, we think about the Rose Parade, or maybe we think about, you know, perhaps a ticker tape parade. If you've ever watched the old newsreels of maybe VE Day when the Second World War ended, and, you know, there's all this stuff going on in New York. There's a lot of things that we could, you know, align ourselves with in our thought processes. But at this time, this was at the Feast of Passover, and we're actually going to be told that, but to begin with, Jesus is now coming into town in a very unique time uh, during the, the Jewish calendar year. And so here they are, they're, they're gathered together in Jerusalem for Passover. And for us to understand that, we have to put it into some type of context that we can actually gather. Now, understand that at that time, more than likely, the city of Jerusalem had maybe a 100, possibly as many as 200,000 people that lived in the region. But the, the great historian is actually a Roman historian, Jewish by heritage, but Flavius Josephus would write about 10 years later that during that particular Passover 10 years later, they slaughtered 200,000 lambs to fulfill uh, the requirements of the Passover. So a lamb was offered for each family. A family could be as many as 10 people. And so at that time, enough lambs were slaughtered that perhaps as many as 2 million people could have been gathered together in the region of Jerusalem. And so let's just say conservatively, maybe half that many were there at this time. So there may have seen an increase in the population of the region by maybe as many as 800,000 people. This is a huge event. But it's not like what we would see today where everybody's in hotels and convention centers and all of those kinds of things. They would have been basically camping. They would have come into the, the valley. They would have been in the Kidron the Valley. They would have been in the Hinnom Valley, which was the city dump, by the way. But they would have been camped all around what we would call David City or, or Zion. And so they're gathered together, perhaps maybe a million, maybe more people. We don't actually know. But there were hundreds of thousands, to be sure, of inhabitants that actually didn't live there, scattered all around the city of Jerusalem. Remember at the time, the Temple Mount was much smaller than it is right now. Right now, today, it's about 37 acres or so. 
at that time. It was probably less than 20. And the city of David flowed beneath it and down into the valley. And so you, you had kind of the central part of the city, and then you have the Mount of Olives, which is to the east, and then a couple of little hamlets down the valley from there. And Jesus is now going to come to Jerusalem. And so we pick up the story the next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now remember who they're talking about here. Jesus was what we would say uh, was a big deal. He was not widely known in the world, but in that region, he was very widely known. He'd been ministering for roughly three years, and he had been healing people and feeding groups of thousands of people all at one time. He takes the loaves and the fishes, and all these things have gotten around. And so they didn't have sporting events. They didn't have movie theaters. They couldn't go bowling. They, they had public events that people, by word of mouth, would spread the word of the news, and people would gather wherever these things would happen. And so Jesus was a big deal. And he's coming into Jerusalem. And so the buzz is starting to run around all of these little groups of people that are camped around Jerusalem. And they took branches and palm trees. And they went to meet him and they cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. You see, because they had heard some of the things that Jesus had done, they began to get the picture Perhaps, just perhaps, this is Messiah. Many of them not convinced, but they were going to show up nonetheless. And and then you get the picture of the parade. And then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it as it was written, Fear not, the prophet Zechariah, writing some 500 years earlier in Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, said this, Well in advance, Jesus wasn't wandering around. Okay, hey, John, could you look up what I'm supposed to do next? You know, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't talking. Hey, uh, could some, okay, you memorize the Psalms and you memorize Daniel's prophecies and you memorize what the prophet Isaiah said. And, oh, could you take track of Micah? What he, he didn't have any of that. Jesus obviously was fulfilling these things because he was God. And he knew exactly what he was supposed to be doing because before the foundation of the world was laid, he was seen as the Lamb. And so he comes into Jerusalem now fulfilling exactly what should be of the Messiah. Fear not, daughter of Zion. That was a name that was given to the city of Jerusalem by the Jewish people at the time. That was their beloved city, the city of peace. Fear not, daughter of Zion, for behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. And you got to love what comes next. And his disciples did not understand these things at first. The people that were closest to Jesus, the ones that had traveled around, the ones that had heard Jesus teach, this whole group of people that had been with him are dense as rocks. They didn't get it. They had listened. They had been with him. They had gone, they listened to this. Can you imagine? They sat at the Sermon on the Mount while Jesus delivers first the Beatitudes and then this incredible sermon. And then he wanders around through Judea, healing people. He he ministers to the, 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 the Samaritan. 
He he speaks all these things to them, and they still haven't got a clue. But when Jesus was glorified, notice this in hindsight, then they start to put everything together. But when Jesus was glorified, he's now looking forward. John the Apostle writing, now remember, he's one of the guys, so he's kind of telling the story about himself without mentioning his own name. It's like, well, I I didn't get it either. But that's actually what he's saying. But when Jesus was glorified, which would happen uh, some 47 days later, then he remembered these things that were written about him and that they were, these things had been done to him. You, you see, all of these things, and this is so important for us to understand, God has always been faithful. There has never, ever, ever been another plan to take care of our greatest need. You see, my greatest need is to be right with God. That's my greatest need. And the only way that can happen is my sins must be forgiven. And then they need to be erased and washed away because they can't go to heaven. I have to take care of that problem. And, and see, mankind through religion has been trying to do it himself. But Jesus came as the Lamb before the foundation of the world. And in fact, Scripture reminds us, John himself reminded us, that Jesus came into the world that the world through him might be saved. Amen? So when Jesus came, it was the Father's plan. It's always been the Father's plan. There's never been another plan. This is the only plan that God has to save mankind. That's why Scripture records for us, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's why there is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. You you can't get there apart from Jesus. Because he was the Messiah. He is the Messiah. He's always been God's plan to take care of my issue. And here's where it's so important for us. You see, we would like to be able to take care of our own issues. Because we all got issues, amen? If you don't have issues in here, um, I'll give you some of mine. Because I have issues. I'll personalize. I got issues. And I need my issues handled because I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. That's Jesus. He is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by Him. And so as Jesus comes into town, therefore the people who were with Him when He called Lazarus out of His tomb, verse 17 says, and raised Him from the dead bore witness. You see, they're all with him. They're going, hey, I was there. I I showed up right after the stinky one came out. Because you remember what it says. Lord, you don't want to open the tomb because he stinketh in the King James. That's another way of saying Lazarus was not looking so hot. And the people that were there when that happened are now traveling with him, and they're coming with the disciples. They're going, we were there. And this whole entourage. But you talk about a lame parade. you got a homeless dude on a donkey with his entourage of other homeless people. That's who this is. And they're coming up there, and, and this is the Messiah? 
That had to be what people were thinking. And yet, people who were actually there that saw the resurrected Lazarus, who's now with them. Because the rest of John's gospel reminds us that the Jewish people wanted to kill Lazarus too. Because we can't have him walking around. I mean, he was dead and he's alive now. And so they're traveling together. This little small band in the midst of maybe a million people at the campground of Jerusalem. Notice what it says. And for this reason, the people also met him because they had heard that he had done this great sign. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees about any more signs? He said, no sign shall be given unto you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Lazarus was a walking sign of the prophet Jonah. He had been dead also in the grave. Jonah himself, God, I'm not doing what you tell me to do. I'm going to go on a sea voyage instead. Hucked overboard, swallowed by a fish. He's in the belly for how many days? Three. What happens to him next? The fish has a little issue. Up on the beach he goes. No sign will be given you save the sign of the prophet Jonah. He's got a walking, talking sign of the prophet Jonah with him. And he's going to now go in to Jerusalem. Fulfilling what God had always had as the plan for you and for me. You, You see... My greatest need was going to be met by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But that wasn't the kind of king, that wasn't the kind of king that the Jewish people wanted. They wanted a conquering king. They wanted a king to deal with Rome. And notice it goes on to say, and the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, (laughs) you see that they're accomplishing nothing. Look at the parade. He's got... A formerly dead guy. Okay, we're going to give you that one. But the rest of it, not so spectacular. And look, the world's gone after him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing story before us. And we pray that the truth of it would pierce our hearts and our minds. God, I pray if there's anyone here today that's never made that profession of faith, never invited you, Jesus, in to forgive their sin and to cleanse them and to make them right. God, that it would happen before they leave this place. Speak to us now in these remaining moments, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You see, all four Gospels record this event. There are only a handful of the, the major events in Jesus' life that all four Gospel authors got, and this was one of them. This was the only public demonstration that Jesus allowed uh, where he's actually proclaimed king and he participated in it. It's the only one. And so as he's riding into Jerusalem, he comes up that road over the hill, the Mount of Olives, and he descends down towards the Kidron Valley. And then he would have come around the edge of the Kidron Valley and then into the city of Jerusalem itself, into the old city, likely through what is now located as the Lion's Gate. Interesting that he would have come in through the lion's gate because the next time he comes back, guess who's going to be? A lion of the tribe of Judah. 
You see, he's always been both the lamb and the lion the first time he came as the lamb. The lamb of God, slain for you, slain for me. His life forfeited so that you might have life, I might have life. What a beautiful picture. But at that time, you see Jesus is participating in this because he's really drawing attention to what will happen in the ensuing week. You see, there were so many people that were there and and gathered at that time. And, And we know from the text that there were Passover visitors, that there were local people, no doubt, that actually lived there, and that there were religious leaders. They're all listed, the Pharisees, those that were around, and the people that had come for the Passover feast. So you had kind of local people. You, you had those who uh, normally wouldn't be there, but because of Passover were. And then you had the religious leaders who were all viewing these events. And they all saw it. They, they all saw the same things. Isn't it strange how people can see a singular event and come up with such different understandings of it? And that was true then, I'm sure. It would be so for us today. It was for them as well. And then you think about the responses, the, the different things that were, that were being um, no doubt bantered about. For Jesus, guess what? <laughs> this was the plan. If you think about it for a second, if, if this was you, if somehow you were wholly enthroned in the heavens and capable of dying for yourself and, and, and you're approaching Jerusalem, wouldn't there be a little bit of thought in your mind, do I really need to go through this? But he didn't go through it for himself. He went through it for you and for me, for us, to as many as believe. Those who receive the good news. He's going into Jerusalem. And nothing could stop him. Actually, the prophet Isaiah said his face was set like flint. And what that means, maybe you know this, maybe you don't. But here in California, many of our Native American peoples that that have inhabited this state uh, very often would trade in obsidian. And obsidian is a type of volcanic glass. And flint is very much the same thing. And you can break it in such a way that the edge is actually as sharp as any surgical scalpel that we have in the world today. Jesus was so focused that the very edge of his his person could not be divided any further. It's just a few microns wide. So focused was Jesus. He wasn't over here. He wasn't over here. He was here. He was going to Jerusalem. And so the Lord Jesus was absolutely in obedience to his Father's will. Remember, he had actually said, I have not come to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This was the plan. So this little entourage traveling with him, also part of God using the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. Can you imagine what the Romans thought when they saw this? The Roman people were the rulers of the known world at the time. If you talked about who was in charge, it was the Romans. And in fact, for a Roman general, and history records this very clearly, a Roman general, if he was sent out on any type of campaign... When he would go and conquer land, if he killed more than 5,000 of his enemies and he would come back then to Rome, 
he was given what was called a Roman triumph. And that was a parade. And all of the finery of Rome was at his disposal. There would be banners, there would be musicians, there would be chariots, there would be horses, and this was just for a general. And paraded in that line, both in front and behind, you would have all the spoils that were taken and all the prisoners that were, were held captive. That was a Roman parade. So can you imagine what the Romans are thinking? This is a joke. This is their king? I mean, come on, we do better than this when we go to lunch. This is their king? Can you imagine what those who were of the tribe of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must have thought? They're actually shouting a messianic psalm. Psalm 118. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And we're not told who started that whole process, by the way. We're not sure who was the first voice to begin to echo those words, but they were fairly certain that this was Jesus. Can you imagine the disappointment when Jesus stood before Pilate and answered not a word in his own defense? When he didn't start an insurrection, when he didn't mount a military campaign, when there weren't over the horizon on the other side of the Mount of Olives, there was no army there that was going to sweep into town and wipe out the Romans. Can you imagine? And we actually know what they were thinking because we're told on those six hours that next Friday, we do not want this man to rule over us. You see, from a Hebrew perspective, from a Jewish perspective, he was not what they wanted. They were looking for a military ruler. And Jesus was coming as a lamb to the slaughter to give his life so that we might have eternal life. Amen? And so as he enters in, it's interesting and you can you can read this in the other accounts. But as Jesus enters into Jerusalem, one of the things he actually ultimately does is he stops and he weeps over Jerusalem. He says, if you had known, even you especially this day, the things that make for your peace, I wanted to gather you. I wanted you to come, but you would not come. You see, Jesus knew what he was doing. So many very, very horrible things have been done to the Jewish people by supposed Christians. Let me make it clear. Jeff Gill put Jesus on Calvary's cross. I did. It was not the Jewish people. It was my sin. And it was yours too. But they were looking for their Messiah. And so as Paul would author the book of Romans, remember what he says there in chapter 11, blindness in part has come upon the nation Israel until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, until the age of grace is over, until it's done, until what God's going to do with us is done. But from Jesus' perspective, when he comes, he came for the Jew first and then the Gentile. He desired for his own people to come. 
You see, they were looking for peace, much like the world cries out for peace today. Amen? Isn't that true? Isn't the world crying out for peace? I mean, look at our country right now. Have we lost our collective mind in this political process? I'm watching what's going on. I don't want to vote for anybody. But I have to, right? We, it's, that's the way we do this, right? But we're looking for peace, and we got people punching each other out at political rallies. It's like we haven't even elected somebody. We're already beating up the people who might vote for them. It's like we are in desperate need. And you could, you could expand this globally. And by the way, this is exactly why the Antichrist, when he comes, is going to rise to power. Because he is going to be a man of peace at first. He's going to bring everybody together. We'll fix it. But Jesus came as the Prince of Peace. And people weren't looking for that kind of peace. That's what he said. My peace I give you, not peace, the way the world thinks of peace. My peace, Jesus said. It's a peace of heart and contentment knowing that I'm right with God. You wonder why the world is such a mess? We look at the Middle East right now, and out of the blood, sweat, and trillions of dollars of treasure that has been spent trying to bring peace to the Middle East, we are not one, not one millimeter closer. And here's why. That's not the issue. The issue is the Prince of Peace. That's the issue. The issue is people still today need Jesus. We keep trying political settlements. They're not ever going to work until the King of Kings and Lord of Lords comes back. We should keep trying, by the way. We want to preserve the life of innocent people. We want to watch over the less fortunate. We're commanded to do that. But at the end, the heart of man is deceitfully wicked. That's what Scripture says. And so they were looking for a false peace, an absence of conflict, and it was going to come through military conquest. That wasn't the type of peace that Jesus brought. And really the issue was they were actually ignorant of what the Scriptures had actually said. When you read the Old Testament, now bear in mind, it's very important for you to put this into perspective. You know, you're blessed. You have a smartphone today. You can go right now, and, and you can go to Blue Letter Bible. You can pull up basically every major translation of the Bible all at once in line. You can type in a verse, and boom, there they are. You can type in keywords and come, you know, Messiah or whatever, and, and it'll give you all kinds of search results. But in that day and time, they didn't even have Bibles much less Bible software to search those things. So when you think about what is being said in this passage, that, that they kind of didn't get it, it's because they, were, they would have had to carry around the scrolls that would contain that information. We're blessed because we now know that the evidence that Jesus was talking about was absolutely in existence before he got there. The Dead Sea Scrolls contain within them either all or part of every single Old Testament book except for the book of Ruth. Every one of them. And they've all been dated by secular archaeologists to at least 100 to about 212 B.C. So we know that the Bible that you have right now in your possession, the entire Old Testament, 
all the prophetic words that were spoken there about the coming Messiah, those were written before Jesus got here. So when the prophet Isaiah spoke about the coming Messiah in Isaiah 52 and 53, when the prophet David, 1,000 years before Jesus got here, said that the Messiah would have his hands and his feet pierced a full 600 years before the Carthaginians even invented crucifixion, they knew it. They'd been talking about it. The Old Testament contains 400 and 86 different pieces of information that are specific about the life, the birth, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Messiah. See, all those things were being spoken of. And and Jesus is saying, look, you knew, but you didn't see it. They would have known that Jesus came to die. That's the whole of Isaiah 52 and 53, the suffering servant. That's what it says. That the chastisement of our peace would be upon him. That by his stripes we would be healed. It was written almost 700 years before Jesus put his feet on this earth as a babe in a manger. You see, there was suffering to be had for Jesus. That's why he came. Here's the good news. He's coming again. Amen? And he came as a lamb the first time. He's coming as a lion the next time. Amen? He's just like Aslan. And when he speaks... The word of God proceeds out of his mouth is what scripture says about the coming king. You you see, he he did exactly what he needed to do the first time. And so when he comes again, he's going to have the title deed to this earth in his hand. And he's going to bring that peace that's supposed to be here now. That's what Jesus wants. That's what God wants. He is the God of peace. He's the prince of peace. Again, Isaiah said that. He's the prince of peace. He's the everlasting. He's the mighty God. He is El Shaddai. You see, but that parade was introducing the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Introducing the one who wouldn't answer Pilate, the one who would be tried illegally six times. Think about it. Jesus was tried illegally six times before he was put to death. And here he doesn't say a word in his own defense. He was God. Don't you think he could have said a few things in his own behalf? I'm pretty sure he could have wiped out Pilate's first and last argument. The week is now set, and whether men like Stephen Hawking want to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Savior or not doesn't change the fact that he is God incarnate in human flesh, and he's the Savior of the world. No matter how much intellect you have, if you miss that thought, if you miss that truth, You have missed the one thing that can purchase you from sin and death. The one thing that can set your feet upon the rock so that when you take your last breath here, the next thing you're going to see is the face of your Savior. You see, Jesus came that that might happen for each of us. That's why it's been left to you and left to me. God doesn't force his hand upon us. 
He loves us so much that he gives us the beauty of choice. You may not like that. You may not appreciate it. The Jewish leaders responded. They, they thought that, you know, that Jesus had won the day. Look, yeah, they're going after him. They're thinking revolts on their way. Yeah, he's probably got an army just over the hill. Maybe he's going to do some more miracles. And so they start plotting. How can we, get, how can we kill him? Because they didn't want that kind of peace. They wanted a different kind of peace. The only peace that we'll really ever have and the only one that matters is the peace of God here in your heart. Amen? You see, you can have the absence of conflict and still be lost. You can have power, you can have authority and still be lost. But what Jesus did was offer his life for us that through him we might be saved and have life. That was the plan. The day is coming when our Savior's coming back. And so this parade that took place 2,000 years ago, it's the most wonderful parade that's ever taken place on planet Earth. It may have lacked all the glory and splendor of our earthly celebrations, but it had the glory of heaven. And in it, the most important person that's ever walked the face of this earth, our Savior and our King Jesus. And so you see, if you get that, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, then you get to be part of the next parade with him. Because his word says that when he returns, he's going to return in glory. And the saints will come with him can't wait for that day it's going to be such an amazing time when the Lord takes what's rightfully his because this world is his and for a little while he's allowed the things that are going on so that people might be able to make a choice to either receive and believe or or to say no I, I really don't want that I'll take what's behind door number two that's not what he wants that's why he wants all men to be saved. And so if that's you, you're here today. We're going to close in prayer. And while we do that, we've got prayer team waiting. They'd love to pray with you. A simple prayer that you'd invite Jesus into your heart. And through that first parade, you might be able to come to the second parade with the King of Kings and with the Lord of Lords. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, How amazing is your love that you offered up your only begotten son in that first parade, Lord, that he came into Jerusalem knowing full well that it would cost him his life and that he willingly went to be beaten, to be bruised, to be crucified, to be put in a dark, empty tomb. But the glory of it is, is that tomb is empty. And we thank you. Lord, we ask that you would, by your spirit, convince and convict of the truth of the gospel. Lord, if there's anyone here today that's never met you, that today for them would be the day of salvation. We're so grateful, Lord, that you loved us first. That you sent Jesus to prove that love. That that parade was for us.
We bless you. We praise you. We honor you. We ask these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Would you stand?